Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. Today it's me, Greg, and I have two guests with me. Ted Stroll, President of the Sustainable Trails Coalition, and Jackson Ratcliffe, Treasurer for the STC. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Good morning. Thank you for uh, having us. Today we're going to talk about mountain bikes and wilderness areas, and specifically the ban on bike use in such areas, and how the Sustainable Trails Coalition is seeking to change that. So as we get started, can you guys tell me a little bit about the STC and what you're trying to accomplish? I'm a mountain bike advocate now for about two years. Uh, I had the opportunity to read some of Ted's writings on the interpretation of the Wilderness Act and what its actual intent was. Uh, and in seeing, you know, I live right near Point Reyes, which is a very urban wilderness area. Uh, where bikes are completely banned, uh, and reading Ted's writings, I realized that there there is a, a significant problem. It seems that bikes are being treated like strip mining uh, and not being uh, seen as something comparable to riding a horse or hiking, which ultimately we very much are. Um, so our goal, and we definitely want to emphasize a misconception that some people have, that we are trying to overturn the Wilderness Act. That is not by no means the case. Uh, there is a very specific federal statute that bans bikes that is an interpretation of the Wilderness Act, and I'll let Ted hit some of the legal uh, aspects of this. And, and that is really our goal, is this one very specific uh, interpretation of uh, mechanized travel. Ted, do you want to take over? Yeah, sure. Um, basically, uh I got the idea for the Sustainable Trails Coalition after spending five years with a group called uh, the Pacific Crest Trail Reassessment Initiative, and we tried to restore mountain bike access to the non-wilderness portions only of the Pacific Crest Trail, and uh, about 60% of the PCT is not in wilderness. The uh, trail is closed to bikes only because of a typewritten order, literally typed up in an office by three uh, senior Forest Service personnel uh, saying no bikes. And uh, in my opinion, it's an unlawful order. You can't do that without public notice and comment. So for those five years, PCTRI and IMBA was very helpful in supporting us. We uh, tried to budge the Forest Service, pointed out that its order was probably unlawful and that it was absurd to keep bikes off the PCT when half, you know, much of the trail, maybe half of it is overgrown, nobody's on it most of the time. Anyway, uh, the point is, um, we could get nowhere. And so I decided at the end of that, uh, and that was about six months ago, that the time had come to simply go over the heads of the regulatory agencies and uh, approach Congress itself. So I circulated um, a proposal to various groups, including Access for Bikes and Jack Board of Access for Bikes, and he uh, seized on my proposal, and we formed a partnership and are, are the co-founders of a STC, and it's been going really well ever since. And I'd like to throw out one other little thing from my perspective as being a mountain bike advocate here in Marin, which is the birthplace of mountain biking and, ironically, one of the most restrictive trail access rural areas in the country. My goal is not just wilderness. Uh, obviously, wilderness is a big win, but ultimately, one of my goals is to get rid of the stigma that, that mountain biking is somehow less environmental, less natural, less good than, than riding a horse or hiking. From my experiences advocating here in Marin, there's many of these people who are against bikes. They, they always refer to the Wilderness Act as some 
you know, Quranic or biblical truth that was passed down to Moses from God that, that bikes are somehow evil. And, and that is just not the case. I, you know, for the listeners to know, I started off backpacking. I've hiked about 600 miles the Appalachian Trail, and I didn't get on a mountain bike and ride a single-track trail until about 10 years ago. I'm 51. I, I'm a late bloomer on mountain biking, and I just absolutely love it. But I, first and foremost, I'm a backpacker and a hiker. What we're trying to do is just give more people the opportunity to enjoy our public lands. And uh, I'd like to see if we can start at the top, get rid of this top-level stigma and, and rule that's not based on science or, or safety or anything, and give everyone a fair chance to enjoy what we have. So, Ted, you talked a little bit about sort of the history that brought you into being the STC and this push towards Congress. Why do you think this hasn't been attempted before? Well, um, I think it was seen as too tall an order. Back in about 2004, the uh, IMBA board uh, looked at a study it had commissioned about whether we could persuade the Forest Service and the other land management agencies to reconsider their bicycle bans on wilderness. And the report IMBA got said the bureaucracies would be basically unbudgeable and it would be uh, unworkable to even try. So that was daunting enough. And in my own, uh, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but in my own mind, the idea of going above the level of the Forest Service, the National Park Service, and the Bureau of Land Management, and appealing to Congress itself seemed like an even harder hill to climb. And, you know, I, I don't really think it occurred to anybody to try to do this because it just seemed like an impossible task. The Wilderness Act, uh, except for a tiny technical amendment, I think in 1978, the Wilderness Act has never been amended since 1964. The uh, conservation organizations, and I regard myself as, a, as an ardent conservationist, the conservation organizations regard the Wilderness Act as something akin to scripture, and they don't want it tampered with. What we're doing does not necessarily require uh, modifying the Wilderness Act, and if, if we did do that, it would be in a very, very minor and uh, carefully tailored respect that would not undermine it in the least. The point is, it just uh, I, I don't think it occurred to anybody to try this because it was too difficult, and it was only when the uh, level of frustration dealing with the uh, Forest Service in particular grew uh, great enough that I think any of us decided to take this on at, at the congressional level. I think with the Republicans controlling Congress, both the House and the Senate, something like what we're trying to do, which is not going to be popular with the Sierra Club or the Wilderness Society, has far greater potential of being accepted. Under a purely Democratic-controlled House and Senate, any negativity that the Sierra Club or the Wilderness Society puts out on any politician is something that they just want to absolutely avoid. The Republican Party is not so afraid of the, the environmental groups. So ultimately, I think we are willing to play politics a little bit more than IMBA or most uh, mountain bike groups ever have, which one side is, is scary, but you know we're playing politics because ultimately this problem is a political issue. It was politics and Congress that created the Wilderness Act. It's a bureaucratic organization that interpreted an aspect of the Wilderness Act to ban uh, human-powered bicycles. So ultimately, it's a political solution to try and fix that interpretation of a wonderful law. Right on. That makes a lot of sense. And that sort of answered one of my questions about what makes you think you can succeed right now. So you think it's partially the unique political climate that we're seeing at this point in time then? 
Yes, that's correct. Let me say, though, this is not going to be a Republican power play of some sort. Our advocates in Washington, D.C., and we have two uh, incredibly skilled and dedicated and energetic people. By the way, they're, they're not mountain bikers. They are simply professional lobbyists. They have been meeting with both Republicans and Democrats or their staffs in both the House and the Senate. And contrary to what I think the organized mountain bike community has felt for years, if not decades, we're finding that in Congress, this is not really a big deal. Uh, we have um, moderate Democrats as well as Republicans who are not only open to our proposal, but uh, interested in you know, actively working on it. The way Congress works is if you have the Democrats controlling either house, then inevitable opponents of what we're doing could always find some senator or some member of Congress who will find a way to block the kind of legislative change we're seeking. With uh, two Republican houses, that becomes much, much more difficult. And so it allows us to leverage our donors' generous donations and get a lot farther in Congress than we would if uh, there were a Democratic House. But that shouldn't be confused with the notion that what we're doing does not enjoy Democratic support because it does. I will also like to add one thing that I found very interesting in our efforts moving into D.C., you know, uh, as far as what makes us think that we can succeed. In our discussions with people who are in D.C. and not mountain bikers, and many of uh, whom actually never visit wilderness, when they hear that bikes are banned, they're like, what? We have a whole lot of people that aren't aware of this rule, and most of them are very surprised, you know, saying that this sounds kind of dumb. I think there's been a large assumption by people that are too close to the problem for too long that they've only heard the people who actually care about this issue passionately. And there's a whole lot of people, a majority of the United States, that is not aware of the truth of this situation, is not as put off by the concept of a bike riding down a trail. And in reality, this, this is a lot more doable than people actually thought because they've been talking to a, a small minority of people that are closer to the problem. I think we've stepped out of the normal realm of the problem and we're finding a, uh, a very different perception than, than what we thought when we started. Yes, and, and let me add to that. You know, um, there's a psychological concept called learned helplessness. And uh, learned helplessness is when you're bombarded by negative reinforcement for long enough that you uh, eventually conclude, at least subconsciously, that you can't get anywhere and you can't do anything. And I will say that if I had to sit across the table from fervent bicycle opponents year after year, negotiating with them about, you know, this trail or that trail, this wilderness or that wilderness, uh, this National Scenic Trail, blah, blah, blah. If I'd had to do that for 20 years, I'm sure I would uh, be totally pickled in learned help helplessness and not be able to uh, conceive of going around these people and appealing to people for whom this is like a very minor issue. So uh, one of the nice things about STC is that our board and our lobbyists have no learned helplessness. Uh, we're not unaware of the influence that our opponents have, and we are mindful of it, but we are not afraid of them, and we do not regard them as ruling the roost in Washington, D.C., which I think traditional advocates, for understandable psychological reasons, they've bought into the idea that if they make any kind of effort to change the wilderness laws fundamentally, uh, the environmentalists will simply squash them like a bug. 
And we do not feel that way. And we're pleasantly surprised to find that the way we feel is being vindicated by our lobbyist conversation with uh, congressional staffs and legislators. That's really fascinating to think about the fact that, you know, since we're so close to the issue, it seems really big to us. But to your average person and to politicians, you know, who are, let's say, dealing with foreign policies and the idea of going to war and mobilizing troops that putting bikes in a wilderness area is a pretty minor feat. Yeah, exactly. You know, for them, it's not even a micro issue. It is a nano issue. And a lot of the uh, interest we're getting from Republicans is not because they are so obsessed about what we're trying to do, but some of them are simply interested in finding very minor areas in which they can helpfully roll back excessively burdensome and antiquated federal rules that don't make any sense. And when they find out that the whole reason uh, bicycles are banned in wilderness is that literally maybe one or two or three people submitted a request to the Forest Service back in uh, the 1970s or 1980s. And the Forest Service, after a lot of internal debate, finally came out with this rule saying no bicycles. So the basis for the whole thing is, is a handful of complaints from members of the public. And then a one-size-fits-all bureaucratic decision by the Forest Service that it implemented at the infancy of mountain biking when there was no understanding about bicycles on trails, how to manage them or whatever. And then what sets in is this incredible bureaucratic inertia where once the rule is in place, the agency does not want to be inconvenienced and it doesn't want to open the can of worms that reconsidering the rule would entail. So it is more comfortable for it to leave it in place. And my impression is that the actual enforcement of bicycles in wilderness, if one runs into a ranger, one might uh, get a ticket. But the agencies themselves, uh, well, not the Park Service, but the Forest Service and the BLM seem to barely have this issue on their radar screen as a matter of uh, like enforcement or worrying about it or whatever. It is simply that they do not want to be inconvenienced and open up a regulatory morass by reconsidering the rule. So... Um, it's funny how these things start as tiny little blips, and then they uh, metastasize. Yeah, it's amazing, like, sort of the long-term consequences of decisions way back in the day, and we're still dealing with them today. Super informative. want to move on a little bit to dealing with maybe some of the, the other things behind this issue. So this is a question for Jackson. Jackson, your editorial published in Enduro, Mag, you said, so instead of embracing the growing community of people, who prefer to use a bike instead of a horse, the environmental community is ignoring the facts and focusing on a pseudo-spiritual view that horses are okay and bikes are bad. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you said, but can you elaborate on this pseudo-spiritual view as you see it? First of all, I do want to make sure I, everyone knows I am not anti-equestrian whatsoever. I think that we in the West have these beautiful large lands, large distances, and being able to use something like a horse or a bike to travel a bit further than one could on foot is part of the American way. It's the American West. What saddens me and frustrates me in my mountain bike advocacy work, both in Marin and with STC, is the fact that the environmentalists are often going very strongly against bikes and claiming factually incorrect science that says that we cause more erosion and all these other environmental impacts 
as part of their excuse or reason why bikes should be banned. Emba, uh, myself, many mountain bikers have done lots of research and the simple fact is, and both from a scientific and from my personal experience, if I look at a trail that is a heavily used designed for mountain bike trail and look at the amount of erosion and wear on that trail and compare it to a trail just outside of a stable, it's pretty obvious to me that bikes cause less damage than a horse and as I said the, the science supports that idea. So what I find very sad then is that the environmentalists who are so often against mountain biking really kind of turn a blind eye to the obvious impacts of the equestrian community. If they were true, sincere environmentalists, you know, those environmentalists who believe that all bikes, horses, and humans should be banned, those are the one group of environmentalists that I think are consistent. Now, personally, I don't think that's a very good use of our public lands. I don't think that's uh, the right approach. I think uh, finding ways that everybody can share and use the lands in an environmentally sustainable way is, is what we should be striving for. Again, coming back to your, your question, it's interesting how the environmental groups are inconsistent. They support equestrian use, they ban bike use, even though the science shows that the, the equestrian impacts are greater. So I find that sad. So if that is the fact, why are they against bikes? And I come back to this is very similar to uh, a religious issue. As long as uh, my actions don't hurt anybody uh, in the woods and I'm not damaging the environment, I don't see the support for the argument. Then the final thing then is what I find very sad is the environmental community and supporters is a somewhat aging group. Some of the environmental groups here in Marin are becoming quite small. They are becoming older. And the mountain bike community and, and culture is, is a young and growing Group. There's, you know, the high school groups here in Marin are very active. The teams are all growing. And these are people that love to be in the woods. They love to be outdoors. They love to enjoy it. And as all of us know who are active in the mountain bike community, mountain bikers provide more sweat and labor to help maintain trails than any group. So the environmental groups, I think, are really missing a generation here. I think it's sad and I, I don't think it's good for America that the environmental groups are sticking with this pseudo-spiritual view that bikes are bad. So riffing off that, what do you think we could accomplish if we joined all of our environmental groups together to focus on conservation? Because right now it seems like many mountain bikers are automatically turned into anti-wilderness advocates because we can't utilize that space even though we would love to protect those areas. So what, what could we accomplish if we were all on the same side? In terms of uh, expanding like wilderness areas, I don't know if conservation groups and recreation groups uniting would have that big an effect because so much of the really uh, spectacular, majestic public lands in the uh, lower 48 already are wilderness and uh, there's not much left. So in terms of adding to the uh, National Wilderness Preservation System, I think that it would have a, only a minor effect. But what it would do is it would help to fix the mess that wilderness is. And I can't emphasize this enough. You go to a wilderness area like the Pesaten Wilderness in central Washington state, which is against the Canadian border, and you see this incredible mess. 
because the trails are ripped up and overrun by horse and pack outfitter trains. The maintenance is woefully inadequate. The uh, Forest Service will not allow its own staff to even use wheelbarrows, let alone chainsaws, to maintain these trails. So what you see is just a horrible mess of rutted, braided, ripped up, ugly you know, scars in the Pesaten. And that's just one wilderness among many. Now, it's going to take a generation to fix all of this. But if wilderness is going to continue under the current paradigm where it is reserved for the exclusive use of you know, relatively tiny handful of backpackers and the commercial operations of horse and pack outfitters and their, their large trains of heavy mammals that cart in people from urban areas uh, for a profit, we're going to continue to see what we do. Other wilderness areas, uh, moving away from the Pesaten, you take uh, some of the wilderness areas here in California, like the uh, Yola Boli, I think would be one of them, that nobody's ever heard of, that nobody visits, and in which uh, I gather the trails are just disappearing because of lack of use. So bringing in a coalition of recreational, rugged, self-reliant, physical fitness-oriented, younger recreationists I think would have a major impact in fixing up the trails, making for better trails, making for sustainable trails. Uh, you know, the name of our uh, group is no accident. We call ourselves the Sustainable Trails Coalition, not as a boilerplate or as using an environmental buzzword, but because we really see what we're doing as leading to uh, the improvement of the environmental conditions in wilderness and particularly the quality of the trails. So I think what you would see is a national wilderness preservation system, a Pacific Crest Trail, and a Continental Divide Trail that are in much better condition that a lot more people want to get out and visit, including hikers and backpackers, not just uh, mountain bikers, and that would broaden the public support base for um, the preservation of these magnificent areas generally. Right on. That makes a ton of sense. So going off of the trail maintenance issue, you know, the Forest Service themselves have claim that they can currently only maintain about 25% of their trail catalog with the funds that they have available. And part of the bill that you're proposing is to make maintenance in these areas easier for both the Forest Service and volunteers. If your bill passes, how much do you anticipate that percentage to grow like that the Forest Service can maintain with the use of modern tools? What do you think they could accomplish? I don't think we have any clue how to quantify that. That was a GAO, Government Accountability Office, report that was pretty complicated. The anecdotal example, I think, is there was a story that we got from one of our supporters of a trail that had, over the winter time had a lot of deadfall, hundreds and hundreds of trees over a few miles. So the workers there snuck out with a chainsaw to take care of the trees and then afterwards went through with an axe to hide the fact that they didn't use a handsaw so this segment of you know x miles of trails you know i don't know the exact numbers but it would have taken a week or two to do it by hand with handsaws they were able to do it in a day or so with a chainsaw but then had to go spend another day to try and pretend that they used different tools i think deadfall and the chainsaw is one of the bigger areas that will just save lots and lots of hours. I would also throw out part of that same report from the uh, Government Accountability Office talked about the need to engage more volunteers. So 
if the mountain bikers are all of a sudden allowed to access some, and I, I do want to emphasize the word some, we think we, I don't think we've alluded to in this t talk yet, we are not seeking 100% blanket access. We, just as a, a blanket rule against bikes is bad, we, we agree that a blanket permit is bad as well. But all of a sudden, the, the mountain bike communities and the local uh, chapter mountain bike groups all of a sudden now have this wonderful trail that goes for a long ways into wilderness. I bet the Forest Service and other groups, BLMs, will find more mountain bike volunteers helping. So that 25% number, I, I wish we could give you a nice, concise number, but we can safely say that that number will safely increase. Right. I think uh, it's uh, generally known that mountain bikers maybe the most generous group in the country with their time in terms of going out and maintaining trails. And currently, we don't do it in wilderness areas or on the Pacific Crest Trail, with one minor exception north of Lake Tahoe, because we don't have access to those trails. And it just seems uh, inevitable that if we did, local mountain bike clubs would go out and maintain them. I did want to follow up on one thing that Jackson just alluded to, and it's very important for everybody to understand that the reform we're proposing, however it happens through Congress, is exceedingly modest. As Jackson mentioned, we're not seeking a blanket opening of wilderness and national scenic trails to mountain biking. None of us supports that. Even if we did, many of the trails would be unrideable anyway. You can't ride the John Muir Trail in the Sierra. It would just be too difficult. So all we're doing is trying to reverse the blanket one-size-fits-all rules that came out of Washington, D.C. in the 1970s and 1980s and have never since been reconsidered in favor of allowing the local Forest Service personnel, local National Park Service, local BLM personnel to work with local groups and decide where and under what circumstances bicycles can go. And uh, the decision might be that there should be no access at all in which case we'd be fine with it because at least it would be based on current considerations and a decision made by people who know the area that they are administering. So uh, if you hear any panic, you talk about the undermining of the Wilderness Act, you know, the gutting of wilderness, things like that. It is so far from the truth. It is just, this is just the tiniest updating of antiquated regulations that have long since lost their uh, rationale. Right. And I think that's a really important point to make because, like you said, there's a lot of trails out there that at the very least wouldn't be rideable and at the very most could cause a lot of user conflicts. So That's right. Uh, but being very critical and open-minded and logical about it makes so much sense. That's right. For example, take the Maroon Bells or the Indian Peaks uh, wildernesses in Colorado. Those things are so overrun with people as it is, it's hard to figure out exactly how you would accommodate bikes. But there could be something like a Bicycle Wednesday or something like that, and maybe only at certain times of the year, in which mountain bikes would be allowed and there might be a permit system where the number would be limited, you would sign up in advance, something like that. The model bill that we have shown to uh, members of Congress anticipates all of this and uh, gives the local land managers full authority to implement any system they want to manage mountain bikes on trails in wilderness and national scenic trails. And it does not require them to open trails to mountain bikes at all if they think it will be unworkable. 
Well, that's all for now, folks. Stay tuned for part two coming soon in which we'll dive more into this very complicated and in-depth issue.